0: <coughs> Namo <coughs> Na- Tassa, Bhagavato, Arahato, some some Namo Tassa, Bhagavato, Arahato, some some Namo Tassa, Bhagavato, Arahato, some some Sanghaṁ Buddhang This is another of the um, uh, previously unpublished uh, talks from uh, Wat Nanachat. I think this is also one of the ones from 1989. And this is entitled, We Can't Attain It, We Realize It. In Buddhist meditation, we distinguish between samatha and vipassana, and it is important to develop them both. Samatha means learning how to concentrate the mind on an object, like the breath, or whatever sign we are using. It is to be developed until we contain the mind and keep it from wandering. We hold and sustain our attention on the object we have chosen. It's a mental exercise that gives the mind a kind of sharpness, but as an end in itself it cannot enlighten us. We can't be enlightened through just concentrating our mind to even a very refined level, like the arupajanas, the formless states of absorption. Insight into the true nature of things is not possible until we start reflecting and looking into, examining and investigating the way things are. Samatha is actually a very simple practice. We tend to complicate it by analyzing and thinking about it, and then, of course, it becomes an impossibility. But it's merely the ability to choose an object and hold our attention on it, a way of training the mind. Most of our minds were not trained in that way before we became Buddhist monks. We're from a society that uses discursive and associative thought. Our minds are conditioned to think in rational ways. Our critical faculties are are sharpened through modern attitudes like competitiveness. We're always busy comparing. This is better than that. This is good. That is bad. Bad, worse, worst, good, better, best. All this sharpens our critical faculties, but also increases our ability to doubt. The more we think about life, the more we experience doubt, uncertainty and anxiety. Samatha is often easier for people who are illiterate, whose critical faculties aren't highly developed. Their minds tend not to wander or to doubt so much. People with a lot of confidence, faith, and conviction find Samatha much easier than those caught in anxiety, insecurity, worry, and despair. Conditions which are the result of a self created. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Conditions which are the result of a self created out of desires and fear. We tend to introspect and analyze ourselves. We evaluate and criticize. These kinds of mental habits make concentration increasingly difficult. Here in Thailand, the Thai monks already have a tremendous amount of faith in and devotion to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. They have a foundation of trust and confidence, of sadha. This is not found so commonly among Westerners, because most of us come to Buddhism out of an intellectual interest. We can be quite impressed by the brilliance of the teaching, but still not feel very much devotion and gratitude or any of these more heartfelt qualities, which are definitely helpful and supportive in practicing samatha meditation. Conditions around us are also important. We can't very well do samatha in a place where there are lots of sensory impingements and demands. The less there is to impinge on us, the easier it is to concentrate our minds. We could go off to a sensory deprivation tank, a cave, or some isolated place where we could stay without having demands and expectations placed on us, where there are no harsh, aggravating, and annoying impingements. Then we could become quite naturally calm, with no sounds and nothing to look at. After the initial restlessness and resistance, we would go into a concentrated state of mind, quite naturally. In vipassana we use wisdom. The surrounding conditions are not the important issue anymore. We look into the nature of things without seeking ideal conditions to do so, but just observe the way things are. We use the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha and anatta, the four foundations for mindfulness, paticca Samupada. All these different teachings are part of vipassana. They are ways of contemplating, reflecting and observing the way things are. The five khandhas for example, how do we use that particular sequence? In themselves, those five concepts of rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, and vijnana, are, con- are conventions and not to be considered from a doctrinal position. They are perceptions to use and to work with. What is being conscious anyway? Even though we are conscious, we may not investigate consciousness. Obviously, everyone here is conscious, but how many of us really know what that means? What's the difference between perception, volition and feeling? These are just ways of examining and looking at the way things are. All of us have the five khandhas so they are something we can examine and investigate. Or let's say we investigate the eye and the object. We really examine them in a practical way. Looking at something with our own eyes And then examining the eye consciousness that arises through the contact with the object. We do the same with sound, smell, taste, touch, or thought and their objects. All of this we can observe and investigate. Sound is going on all the time, but we're not always conscious of it. When we look at something, we're conscious through the eye, but we're not conscious through the ear. Consciousness can move very rapidly, so it seems we can be conscious through all the senses at the same moment. But if we examine more carefully, we begin to see that, at the, time that at the time when we look at something, we're no longer conscious of a sound. When eating food, notice the consciousness of taste. We can be thinking about something while we're eating and not be aware of eating. How many people really taste our food? When eating, they're often in a rush, talking or busy or they like to have snacks every now and then, while reading or watching the television. When the eye is concentrated on an object of sight, we're no longer conscious through the body. At that time, hot and cold, pleasure and pain don't exist. So to deal with physical sensation, maybe to get away from physical discomfort, we can distract ourselves by looking, listening, or turning to something else. That's one way of dealing with discomfort. Another way is the investigation of physical pain, going right to the actual sensation of pain, looking into the pain itself, getting to know the difference between the sensation of pain and the aversion we mentally develop around that sensation. For example, we have pain in our legs. If we concentrate our attention on the actual sensation, we stop thinking about it. We're with the sensation. But we're not creating mental aversion to its seemingly unpleasant appearance. Generally Generally though we're not so refined and aware. We tend just to be averse to physical pain and discomfort, and try to suppress them, or use willpower to endure them. But when we go to the sensation itself, there is body consciousness. We're not adding aversion onto the pain. I can't stand it, I don't want it. Those are the emotional reactions to physical discomfort and pain of any sort. This is to be investigated and observed. When we bring attention to the sensations of the body, whether they are pleasant, painful or neutral, the body will relax more and more. When we feel tension or stress, if we concentrate on that spot with just an attitude of bare attention, without aversion, the condition for pain can diminish. What we really can't stand is the emotional reaction. Most pain we can bear. It's when we think, I can't stand any more of this. That w- that's when we give up and try to get away from it. If we're caught in the emotional realm of, I can't bear it, we may even have that thought before there is any actual pain. What if pain arises? I won't be able to stand it. We can already be suffering from the possibilities of experiencing pain that we don't even have yet. Because of our ability to remember pain we've had be- that we've had before and couldn't stand. So we investigate how the mind works, the way things are. If our body is giving us pain, that's the way it is. It's not something that we've created. We're not deliberately, intentionally trying to make pain arise in our body. But ignorance, desire and fear cause the reaction of aversion, wanting not to have or to get rid of. Notice how lust and sexual desire make us dull, so we lose our ability to discriminate. We can be caught in lustful fantasies, seeking sensual pleasures with mind and body, and lose our sense of perspective. We may become so eager to get what we want and experience the pleasure we anticipate that our ability to discriminate becomes inoperative. Aversion and anger tend to make us very critical. Lust does just the opposite. Its push is to get what we crave. That is our sole aim and purpose. We can lose our sense of propriety and integrity, and many other virtuous qualities when we're caught in that lustful tendency of the mind. I remember that at Wat Bupong, there were hardly any sweets or sweet drinks, so whenever there was any, so whenever there was the possibility of anything sweet, we would become obsessed with that idea. Once someone gave me a bag of sugar, I took it back to my cootie and tasted it. Suddenly. That taste of sweetness created such greed in my mind that I consumed the whole bag of sugar in a very few minutes. I was completely out of control. That was surprising, because I wasn't into sweets very much as a layperson. Then I would have thought it was disgusting to eat a whole bag of sugar in five minutes. But the conditions for greed were supportive. The fact that I was alone, nobody was watching me, and no one would know. Also, sweetness is a very attractive taste, especially if we're eating one meal a day and we're celibate. For a layperson, greed is usually spread out, scattered over quite a range of things, so we don't notice it so much. Thought doesn't collect on anything as simple and as ridiculous as a bag of sugar. But in the homeless life, we might, feel, we might find ourselves lusting after a bag of sugar, something that would not have interested us at all as laypeople. Who would ever eat just sugar granules if they could get pralines, fudge, and all kinds of much more pleasurable, pleasurable sweets to indulge in? The one thing that this incident allowed me to see and contemplate was the sweet taste of sugar and how it created the desire for more in the mind. If we follow that impulse and are caught in that desire, we start stuffing ourselves until we've had so much we can't handle any more. That's what lust and greed are like. But with mindfulness, we can taste sweetness and just be aware of its pleasant qualities. Through investigation and understanding, We no longer create lust around it. It is as it is. We don't follow it, seeking to have it again and again and again, until we're absolutely satiated. Mindfulness allows us to know and be aware of time and place, appropriateness and suitability. It allows us to have integrity, to be considerate and thoughtful in our lives. My generation of Americans never admitted to being afraid of anything. To be a man, one had to put on the act of being what they call macho, strutting around wanting to give an impression of fearlessness. Strangely enough, often some of the most aggressive types of men are the most frightened. In meditation, these masculine and aggressive types have to deal with tremendous fear and terror. A natural fear can arise like the instinctive fear if a tiger is chasing us. That's a natural protective device. It's not a person... It's not personal, and it's not a fault. It doesn't make us heedless. That kind of instinctive fear when we see a tiger who looks ready to attack us makes us a- act very swiftly in order to protect our life. Then there's also the fear of things that haven't occurred, of possibilities in the future, All the anxieties and worries that we create in our lives about the possibility of being hurt or damaged, ostracized or humiliated and insulted, being deprived of what we want. There's the fear of the unknown. We can look into the black night and become frightened because our eyes can't see in the darkness of the night. Or we can be afraid in a closed room with no light. Anything could be there. Our sense of security, of knowing, isn't present. We could imagine ghosts, monsters, or they might be scorpions, tarantulas or cobras. In this country, it's quite possible to go into a room where there's a cobra that we can't see. There's a lot to be afraid of in this life as human beings things we know are quite possible things we know are quite possible could happen to us we could be hit by a car or attacked by somebody think of the fear and anxiety women have to bear because they are an attractive force to men they have to be careful not to put themselves in positions where they might be sexually attacked that's a possibility of which they are very much aware These are natural kinds of fears and anxieties coming from our human condition. Because we're born in this state, this is the way it is. But then fear may become neurotic, obsessive and unreasonable. We can be driven by fear that we've never really looked at, but are just suppressing or repressing from consciousness. We can be concerned about what people think of us. We're creatures who care about what other people think of us. We can be anxious and worried that others don't like us or don't want us. It can become quite obsessed and read being unwanted, despised or looked down upon into every situation. Anxiety, worry and doubt, all these imply dealing with unknown things. Instinctive fears deal with the known, with a definite situation. But because we think and imagine, we create a self, a personality, a person who can always be hurt, insulted or offended in some way or another. It's so fragile, isn't it? We worry about the future and we feel guilty about the past. We're anxious about the situation we're in, that something might go wrong, that something bad might happen. Note this state of mind. Uncertainty, insecurity and worry are so ordinary in our daily life experience and yet we do not understand them and merely try to get rid of them. How can I get rid of my worries? What I found helpful is to notice and be aware of what it's like not to know, or to be uncertain about things, and then to investigate not knowing, rather than always trying to know or to dismiss uncertainty and insecurity. The desire to know and to have security is very strong. We like to feel that we're practicing in the right way. This is really the best monastery in the whole world. This is definitely our path. It's the right religion, the right philosophy and psychology. Yes, we're definitely doing the right thing. Maybe we want somebody to affirm that what we're doing is right. We want affirmation from teachers, other monks, people around us, to be told, yes, you're on the right path, yes, this is the perfect place. But what happens if somebody comes here and says, "Eh, this monastery isn't very good, you should go somewhere else and take so-and-so's retreat? Then what does our mind do? If we're not really investigating the way things are, We're caught up in doubt and uncertainty about what we're doing. Then we go to a senior monk like me and say, Is this the right way? And I say, Yes, it is. This is the right place for you. Oh, thank goodness. Somebody said it wasn't. So I was a bit worried that maybe I was in the wrong place. Look at fundamentalist Christianity, where everything is affirmed over and over again. At a born-again Christian meeting, there's a continuous affirmation of this is the only way. Jesus is our saviour. This is right. All the others are wrong. It's the only way. Do the Buddhists? No, 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 no. They're totally wrong. It's wrong, wrong. Jesus didn't teach Buddhism. He taught Christianity. What about Roman Catholics? No, 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 no Popery and all that. Endless prejudices. Except about one particular form of fundamentalist Christianity, which is the only way. So I might say... Venerable Sir, please give me a testimonial about your experience with this particular religion and how the Lord came and saved you. The Venerable Sir gets up and says, I used to be a sinner and drink liquor, then I discovered Jesus and now I am saved. My whole life has changed. I used to be an alcoholic and gamble and was totally immoral. Now I've given it all up. Everybody weeps and cries and everyone exclaims, praise the Lord. But in Buddhism, we look at doubt rather than trying to convince ourselves that Buddhism is the right way. We want to investigate and look into the nature of things. It's not a matter of trying to tell everyone that that this is the best way. Buddhism is the only way, that's for certain. In Vipassana, we look at the way things are, so that when there's doubt, we investigate what it is to be wobbly, anxious and worried. Real confidence comes with sotapati, stream entry, when we're not affirming the eightfold path as a belief, but actually getting through doubt. By understanding its nature. To enter the stream, we have to really know silapata silapataparamasa and vichikicara, personality view, attachment to practices and conventions and doubt. These are the three fetters cut off through stream entry. They are not to be rejected but to be investigated. Often we just want affirmation and ask, am oh, I a yes, Sotapanna, a stream-enter People love to speculate about who's a stream enter or an arahant, but it's not a matter of somebody becoming a stream enter, but of recognizing those fetters for what they are and no longer being deluded by them. Because as long as we're caught in doubt and uncertainty and keep following them, they're definitely not going to see the path, the way out of suffering. To receive affirmation isn't the way out of suffering either, because it always needs to be reinforced. People have to agree with us. Yes, this is the way. Yes, you have attained. Yes, yes, yes. All the great Ajans have agreed that I am a fully-fledged stream-enterer. I have a certificate. Here, see, has the signature of an important bhikkhu on it. There is a seal, and even the Sangharaja signed it. So the Sangharaja is the head of the Thai Sangha. This is being preposterous, of course. What matters is not affirmation that we are anything, but recognizing the nature of doubt, and the attachment to self-view and to conventions. What's more preposterous than wanting to become a sotapana? If we ask, am I a sotapanna yet? There's still doubt in our mind, isn't there? That's vichikicara. Ja. And if we say, I'm a sotapanna," that's self-view, sakayaditi. <laughs> so we investigate this way of thinking, I am, I should be, I am not. Am I? Have I? The value of teachings like sotapanna, anagami, arahant is not as attainments, but that they are to be used as reflections. Then more and more relinquishment and letting go can take place, rather than achieving or attaining something. We can't attain these things. We realize them through letting go and understanding the nature of things. On the personal level, we want to attain them. But once we appreciate these teachings as ways for reflecting on attachments, there is no need to hold on to a view of having become something or not become anything. We, we can equally well we can equally well hold the view that we haven't attained anything, even though we may have been a monk for many years, or, be, or to be super modest. Oh, I couldn't possibly. Oh, little old me, dare to assume that I've entered the stream? Oh, someone might condemn me a boasting of utri That's parajika. That's a defeat offence. Uh, claiming uh, attainments or supernormal powers when they are not true is a, a disrobing offence. So we use our reflective capacity instead of judging that there are certain things we have to get rid of in order to become a stream entrant. Some people take the idea of not being attached to the opposite extreme and say we shouldn't have rules and traditions. Ceremonies and celibacy, it's all rubbish. One just gets attached to it and one shouldn't be attached to anything. That kind of thinking is still Sakaya other people really hang on to the vineyard and tradition, trying to protect them by all possible means in order to make sure that everything is going to be all right. We have to get rid of, kill, annihilate, and burn at the stake any blasphemers or heretics who threaten the purity of our tradition. Got to keep my vineyard pure, and if some woman comes along and touches me, dares to touch me, am I pure or not? How do I know I didn't set myself up? Maybe latent sexual tendencies are lurking, and I'm placing myself in a very convenient position for a woman to come along and touch me then I'll have an offence. We can make the whole vineyard structure incredibly burdensome through foolish and blind attachment to it, and strange views about purity and impurity, rather than using it for restraint and as a way of reflecting, and of establishing limits we can use and standards to work from. I talk about my own experiences so others don't have to be ashamed about having foolish thoughts and attachments as long as we are willing to learn from them and see them clearly, rather than to suppress them or believe in them. I remember I spent a vasa, a rains retreat, at Wat Kau Chalak. The vinaya there is very strict and the monks are quite obsessed about it. I thought, I am from Wat Bapong. we have good vinaya. And so I announced myself. They said, oh yes, the Wat Vapong vinaya is not so good, ours is much better. So I was, in, I was intimidated. Their vinaya is better than ours, I want to keep the best vinaya and I became really interested. Then I went to a small island where one of these monks was living as a kind of hermit. I stayed with him for a while and then left. Later on, he told the other monks that I didn't have a very good understanding of vineyard. When I heard that, I was really angry. I was ready to go right back to that island and punch him, out on, the, uh, and punch him on the nose. Uh, incidentally, that is against the rules. So. <laughs> I thought my Vinaya was really good, but he said it wasn't. That seemed like an insult to me but it's also sakya ditti, isn't it? Is, is that skillful use of vinya comparing my vinya is better than yours how dare you accuse me of not keeping good vinya it's not the vineyard that's the problem the danger lies with sakya ditti, silapata paramasa and vichikicara another aspect to reflect on is the two sects of damayuta and mahanikaya so these are the two branches of the, of, the, of the Thai Sangha. The Dhammayut arose in the 19th century as a reform movement to establish pure standards in the Thai Sangha. Mahanikaya is the much larger branch. Dhammayut monks will often not recognize Mahanikai bhikkhus as valid bhikkhus at all. Ajahn Chah and his bhikkhus are forest or practicing kamatana bhikkhus within the Mahanikaya and they keep to the standards, esp- uh, they keep to the standards espoused by the Dhammayut, sometimes even stricter. Sometimes they put us at the end of the line for food and treat us as if we're not proper monks. In such situations, we might see Sakayaditi arising. How dare they! These kind of self-views. To me, it seems much better to watch them than to make much of them and to be carried away by indignation because we're being treated in a way we think we shouldn't be treated. When we practice Dhamma, we take life as it is. We don't try to make everything fair and just, straighten out the world and make everything as it should be. We're willing to use life's unfairness and to use each experience for practicing the Dhamma, to recognize the way things are. If we feel angry for being looked down on and regarded as something inferior, not as good, though we think we are quite as good or even better, this is an opportunity to see Sakaya Ditti. We investigate and we learn to use life's experiences wisely. Western women who come to Thailand are often easily offended by the fact that monks, the men, get all the attention. Women are always at the back, flat against the wall, in the part of the room that's farthest away from the monks, and they're always supposed to lower themselves and be respectful in the presence of monks. Western women can be quite upset and indignant about this. They even write articles about how unfair and wrong it is, how women can become enlightened just like men. But there's no difference at all. I'm not justifying this monastic standard as an ideal form for women, but if we're really serious about understanding Dhamma, if we want to get beyond suffering, it's good to use the situation for watching our minds, rather than stomping away in a huff, thinking it's not fair and we're being looked down upon. Much more benefit comes from just observing and using such experiences through reflection, not going around asking life to be fair. In England, that's the whinger's cry. It's not fair, it shouldn't be like this. I'm all for fairness, actually, but so much of life is unfair anyway. In Dhamma, we can use the unfairness of life with wisdom, rather than being offended and upset, and thereby missing the opportunity for enlightenment. When we first moved to Chithurst years ago, I could observe how my mind, if I let it, would become involved with wanting the monastery to be successful, or doubting whether it was the right decision to move there. But more and more, we just work with the flow of life. We see what we're doing and the things that are happening to us, how they affect the mind. The I am, the self-view, the doubts that arise. Having very set views about how things should be done in a monastery and then feeling threatened when we can't force the situations into being exactly as we think they should be. In Thailand, the monasteries are an integrated part of society. But in a country like England, we're on the fringes. We're oddballs. There we can't make the monasteries exactly as they are in Thailand. We observe the mental and emotional reactions. I could see things like fear of everything falling apart and going wrong. If I would given in to that fear, everything would have degenerated and fallen apart, leading to panic and hysteria. You've got to hang on, hold it up, make it and force it, push it into being exactly what it should be. It was a terrible mental state to have to live with. More and more in our lives, if we develop our reflective capacities, we keep learning from life's experiences as we move into different situations. We develop all kinds of strengths and abilities to cope with exotic, strange, difficult or uncertain situations that before would have, <coughs> would have absolutely overwhelmed us. If we practice in order to observe the way things are, there's a fearlessness in the mind. We go beyond the fear of life and the possibility of humiliation, of falling apart or losing control. After being investigated, all that is no longer a problem in the mind. There's a willingness to look at life honestly and courageously, rather than being wimpy monks hiding away because we might lose our purity if we step out of our cave. If we're frightened, worried and anxious, and we don't investigate, confront and learn from these mental states, we'll always be worried and anxious about things. By becoming obsessed with states of mind, we make cowards of ourselves can't rise up to life at all, but always have to make sure everything is going to be all right, with nothing to threaten us. We settle for mediocrity and comfort, for security and safety, because going into the unknown, looking into the possibilities and potentially threatening situations that await us in the future, completely overwhelms our minds. We want to have a guarantee that we're going to be safe. But monastic life, the life of a summoner, is one of uncertainty. One meal a day, not hoarding things, not having security like money in the bank and food stored away in our kutis, always living on the edge with the possibility of having to go without a meal, of not getting what we want. So in the situation we are in now, at this moment, we have the opportunity to use the tradition, the vinya, the practice of Dhamma. We use the form as a criterion and a standard to observe with, rather than as an attachment or forming opinions about it as being useless. This monastery here, this is the way it is. What, Pananachat? It's like this. We can think, I want a more remote monastery without a lot of visitors coming. We can be very offended by a, <coughs> a coachload of tourists coming to watch the prafaran, the foreign monks, and take pictures of them. We can be caught up in Sakayaditi, Silapataparamasa, and Vichikichar over something like that. But if we turn towards Dhamma, We can use the situation for watching our minds and observing the way things are. There was a Prat a Western monk, years ago, who was always looking for the perfect monastery. I went to visit him once, but he wasn't there. It was a beautiful place with caves, absolutely ideal. A few months later, I met this monk in Bangkok, and I said, You aren't at that monastery anymore. He said, No, it wasn't the right place. Why? It seemed like a wonderful place to me. He said, oh, I couldn't bear it. They gave me a kuti that was too close to the next one. Every time I walked to the meeting hall, I had to pass right in front of this other monk's kuti. That disrupted my practice. So I left. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> Digestion. <laughs> so I left. Then he said, but I found this really fantastic place in the south and I'm going there. A few months later, I met him again, so I asked how this super-duper place in the south was. He said, well, I thought it was really going to be the ideal place, but you see, every time on arms around, these dogs would start chasing and biting me, so I had to leave. He ended up disrobing. Endlessly looking for the ideal place is still being bound to the three fetters. Here at Watpananachat, can we accept the way it is without judging it? I'm not asking anyone to approve or like the way it is. And I'm not dwelling on the things we dislike about it. I'm asking people to observe it. It's like this. This is the way it is here. It's this kind of place. Then we can be aware of our own opinions. I like it. I don't like it. I want to find a better and more quiet place. I want to be alone. I don't want to be in a community with a lot of monks. So on and so forth. I remember years ago visiting a monastery where the Farung monks said, Oh, this is the best monastery. There are hardly any monks here. Tanajam will only accept 18 monks at the most at any time. Most of the time there are less. It's a really good place for practice. A few years later they were complaining, Oh, now we have about 25 monks. It's not like it used to be here. We can't practice anymore. We've got to find another place. Endless measuring, thinking. Thinking there's a perfect place in this worth in this world to meditate. All we have to do is find it. The perfect forest monastery with just the right number of monks, an enlightened teacher, the ideal and walking path, everything just super-duper perfect. Remote, without tourist coaches coming in, no noise from the highway, no low-flying aircraft, transistor radios from the rice paddies, the food is adequate, vegetarian, whole grain, organically grown. And the abbot is a certified arahant. It's the perfect place. I keep looking for it. Maybe it exists somewhere, but rather than spending our life trying to find it, the way of Buddha Dhamma is to see the way things are. Nothing is preventing us from looking at the way it is. Tour coaches, noise from the highway, low flying aircraft, any kind of food, there is nothing that isn't Dhamma about them. They may not be be what we want, and so Sakaya Ditti arises because we don't like them. In order to develop, We need to really penetrate this. We use the situation, the frustrations, the injustices, the unfairness, the mosquitoes, the hot weather, the interruptions and distractions to observe, allowing ourselves to witness greed, hatred and delusion and the whole range of fetters that affect us if we're ignorant and heedless. A glorious collection of themes there. Um, the the piece about um, the Dhammuyut and Mahanikai. This is um, one of those mysterious things. Um, these two different lineages of of the monastic order in in Thailand. Um, so, as you said, in the eyes of some, of the, so we're a Mahanikai community, and in the eyes of some of the Dhammayut monasteries, we don't we're not properly ordained, so we're not really proper monks at all. And so um, <clears throat> when you go to stay at a dummy monastery you 're not allowed to join in with the recitation of the rules uh, when it 's the time for the alms round or uh, then or the, when it 's time for the meal then if if you uh, if you touch a, a bowl of food then uh, and then put it down in front of one of the the resident monks and they 'll consider the food not properly offered they'll have to get a layperson to kind of reoffer it again and, or, or offer it to them and uh, it can be kind of bizarre. I was, uh, and it, when I was reading this, it made me think of the uh, the funeral of uh, Ajahn Tate, who was one of the senior disciples of Ajahn Mun. And so uh, a large group, I uh, happened to be visiting Thailand at that time, and, and so was uh, Lumpur Sumedho. And so a large group, about 25 foreign monks from Wat Panana Chhat, all went up to Nongkai, to where Ajahn Tate's monastery was. And so they were there at the, the funeral. And the tradition is um, over the, the few days preceding the funeral, then that there are d- dumber talks given during that time. And then the closer to the actual funeral day and the funeral time, the sort of more highly esteemed and sort of the more kind of the, 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 the bigger guns get invited to give talks. So if you're not invited to give a talk on day one of a five day session, then you're kind of a of small scale. Yeah, uh, teacher, but if you're sort of up on the you know, the night of the funeral or the, day, or the day before, then you're taken as a really significant and important Dhamma teacher. So they they invited Lumpur Sameto to give a, uh, one of the, the talks on the, the night before the actual cremation, and right after Lumpur Put, who was a, a senior Dhammayut monk and a, a, a one of Ajahn Mun's disciples and considered to be an Arahant, and, and so Lumpur Sameto was, was talking right after him so put up in this very exalted position of uh, like one of the one of the big guns um there at the funeral but then at the at the meal offering um <laughs> then he was sat down at the end of the line <laughs> so that uh, so that when the the food was passed along he the, he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't sully the food or make it sort of uh, make it unoffered because of course he wasn't really a monk <laughs> so it's completely wacky um, uh, but a really good opportunity to observe you know the how dare they or look if he's if he's not a monk, how come you're asking him to give a Dhamma talk <laughs> <laughs> up with the up with the uh, these sort of sky high um, sort of super Ajahn's? Uh, but uh, you're not enough of a monk to to touch the food and then and still have it as as uh, properly offered. But uh, it's wonderfully bizarre in that respect and a good opportunity to to look at that feeling of attachment to um, conventions. So many useful themes in there. I think early on there was a piece about. Dealing with pain, and uh, this is something that come up in a few of the other uh, other readings. But it's very useful to attend to um, that. The sensation of pain is one thing, but then the anguish and and agitation, the the fretting and negotiating that goes on, is uh, separate from that. And so, in meditation, this is extremely helpful advice to bear in mind that. The, the feeling of discomfort is one thing, and what the mind brings to it and adds on to it is another. And so this is um, <coughs> what the, is called the teaching of the arrow. There's a, a short sutta in the Sanyita Nikaya called the arrow. And the Buddha likens it to, because he was a, uh, a a soldier, he was in the military life before he became a monk. So he uses a lot of military analogies. And he says it's like a, a, a soldier uh, being shot on the battlefield with an arrow nobody can avoid the first arrow so you have a body you have a mind you experience phys- uh, feelings of discomfort that's that's unavoidable nobody can uh, escape from that um, but the second arrow is the feelings of resentment and anguish and irritation negativity that arise on account of that so that's the second arrow and so if we're mindful we can we can evade the being hit by the second arrow that we can do and so when we talk about the ending of suffering in uh, in in the Four Noble Truths and in the Buddha's teaching, we're talking specifically about the second arrow. But even the, the Buddha himself had chronic back pain when he was an old man. When he was 80, he, he said that uh, his, uh, he experienced pain. He said, my body is like an old cart held together with strings and straps and, and bits of wire. You know, that uh, the only way I can experience comfort is to completely absorb my mind into the sunyata vihara, like the, just to totally dissociate his attention from the sense world. That's the only way he could feel comfort. If he was paying attention to that sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch, then he was in he was in pain, constantly. And so, uh, and he says it in a very matter of fact way. It's not like oh poor me or like. <laughs> uh, 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 that he's upset about it, but just this is happens to be the fact. I'm old, this is a part of being old, is that uh, my body's like an old cart. And so that uh, when we talk about the ending of suffering and dukkha niroda, it's not a matter of ending your physical pain or, or never having anything unpleasant uh, happen, um, but rather it's a, a, a dodging the, the second arrow. That's the, the thing that makes the... The, the the difference. So that even though the body might have some pain, then the mind is able to not make a problem out of it. And then we can respond to that painful feeling in a, in a skillful way. As a rule of thumb in meditation, um, when people say, well, what, how, how much pain should I endure before I move? Or is it okay to, move, to change your posture at all? And so um, the rule of thumb or the standard I like to encourage is Um, You should wait until you've let go of the negativity and then um, if you are moving out of kindness for your body rather than aversion to the pain, then it's quite alright to move. But As long as there's negativity and fear and hatred, then you should just uh, wait, (laughs) develop patience and and let go of it. But when it's an act of kindness for your body, aware of your body's limitations, then it's appropriate to, to, to change the posture. Then speaking about fear and um, being chased by tigers and the different kinds of fear, this is again a very appropriate and useful teaching. There's a a wonderful book by uh, an American scientist called Robert Sapolsky called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. why zebras don't get ulcers. And the reason why zebras don't get ulcers, and often you see on these wildlife films, you'll see a, you know, a couple of zebras grazing happily away, and there's sort of a lion jumping on you know, Cousin Joe just across, you know, just 10 yards away, and sort of having his rope th- uh, throat ripped out and... But uh, the 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 other the zebras in the foreground are happily sort of munching away. Is because they know well cousin Joe got it this morning, so we're all right. <laughs> we're not uh, we're not the target today. And so, when a lion is chasing a zebra, then it needs to get stressed. It needs to increase the heart rate. It needs to stop the digestion. It needs to put as much um, of uh, 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 say energy into the muscles and to run. Uh, but it needs to get really stressed uh, for about a couple of minutes. And then at the end of that time, it's either escaped from the lion or it's the lion's breakfast. You know, either way, the, the, the issue is, is over. So it, it, you, need, you need that stress reaction. And then um, because seemingly many animal-wise zebras can't uh, think about yesterday or think about tomorrow, apparently, they, um, <coughs> then they, the, the fact they've got away... Uh, then they're no longer being chased, then they, the, the stress reaction falls off and then they are able to carry on happily. Uh, why we have ulcers as human beings is because we remember and we can anticipate and, we, and that we escape from the lion today, but then we can create endless anxiety through the rest of the day about, oh, what about tomorrow? Oh, what about the day after? Oh, what am I going to do? How can I protect myself? And so uh, we get ulcers because we sustain that stress reaction for more than the two minutes, for like two hours, three hours, two days, two weeks, and we can keep it going for months, months at a time. So we get uh, ulcers from the the, um, the body's functions being compromised by those stress reactions. So in this respect, I think it's helpful saying that you know don't 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 resent fear or, or uh, think that it's a, a neurotic problem. It's it's a useful thing. The, our ancestors who weren't afraid were the ones that got eaten by the tigers. <laughs> so they, when they, they they you know heard the sound of a tiger growling nearby, they just sort of carried on digging for roots and hunting the you know, picking berries and then. <laughs> <laughs> so the ones who weren't afraid got eaten. The ones who said, "Oh, that sounds like a tiger. Ugh, get out of here!" Yeah. Then they they are, they were the ones who are, were our ancestors. And so fear is a useful thing. It's it's there for a purpose. But it's when it spills over its boundaries and it becomes. A, um, a neurotic problem, and so that uh, I would recommend that he's a very engaging writer. Most of his um, studies were on uh, baboons and baboon families and tribes in uh, Kenya, I believe, and uh, he, uh, he gave them all sort biblical names. So they called things like um, Rebecca and Hepzibah and Jeremiah and uh, Abraham. So. Uh, the, the members of the baboon tribes, and uh, but he's, a, he's very, very insightful and he's a very engaging uh, writer. So I would rec- recommend that. I give an unashamed uh, <laughs> recommendation for that um, for that book. Um, then uh, maybe the last thing to mention um, when uh, Lompore Smeder is uh, talking about. Um, uh, asking the Ajahn, "Am I a stream enter yet?" He, uh, and then later on, he's saying, "You know, I talk about my own personal problems because, you know, I, I want uh, you know, uh, I don't want you all to have to feel you have to go through this too." It's because uh, that uh, uh, he would uh, find himself from time to time trying to get Ajahn Chah to tell him, and uh, so trying to maneuver him into making some comment about whether he thought he was a stream enter or not. And he said, Sumedho, if you're still doubting." <laughs> Doesn't that mean that you're not a stream entry yet? <laughs> so, uh, uh, but he, uh, as soon as you tried to sort of maneuver with Ajahn Chah or trick him into anything, you knew you were, you were toast, as they say. You were going to have a, a bit of a, a, tough, uh, a tough time. So, many, uh, many wonderful themes there. Uh, any questions, reflections? What's that? Are you a streamer? (laughs) We can have a survey. (laughs)
1: You know, um, I I said to them that this is a question you never asked Lopold. It's one of the questions you never ask in our Sunday in England. You know, it's like completely taboo, not in the you know in the kind of you know a secret way, but just like how stupid are you to ask such a question, kind of thing. You know, and I realized you know you know it's like certain things you never ask mm-hmm. Lopold because you basically Oh, well, what an idiot you to ask me such a stupid question. <laughs> and because I didn't know, myself, you know, one of the sisters will ask about, you know, stream entry, I think, got we really interested in this thing, so very good questions, you know. And I think, you know, and I used to learn, you know, I think I knew about I no, so. uh, you know, she obviously hasn't been at the very long, you know, because it's just not the kind of, you know, the artist kind of question was on go, you know. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, yeah, he'd
0: been through that with with Ajahn Chah. it's
1: useful. Because you know, like that, mm-hmm. you say, you know, like that, and he could teach us, <laughs> you know, if you still ask, then obviously you're not one.
0: Also, it was interesting when um, and because generally, like, like Ajahn Chah, he wouldn't talk about levels of attainment and or um, achieving levels of of jhana, uh, of meditative concentration. That that's just, again, it's a kind of t- not exactly taboo subject, but just uh, w- wouldn't talk in those terms. Um, because mostly, because Ajahn Chah found that as soon as you start talking. Or making much of that, then people start making, you know, I think, well, I wonder if she is, I wonder if she is a stream enterer. Well, well, actually, she could be like an anagami. I mean, she's got the kind of maybe, maybe not. Well, where am I? And where's he? Where's she? And you know, what kind of level are you at? And so he, he saw that it produced far more confusion and, um, and uh, say, uh, disturbance in people's lives. And so he just wouldn't talk about it in those terms. And I remember being on a, a retreat that, that Lumpus was leading. And you know, being all very aware of uh, avoiding talking about attainment. And every single talk was uh, this whole 10-day retreat. So like a couple of talks a day, every single one was about self-view, attachment to you know, rules and conventions, and getting beyond doubt. You know, so every single talk for, over the whole 10 days was all about breaking through the the uh, the the three fe- the first three fetters, and he never mentioned stream entry once. <laughs> so it was like, it's like he just say so giving people the tools, talking about how you uh, how you identify these obstacles, how they're broken through, but not you know, using the kind of um, terminology where you're going to create an, a more self view around it. Like, and he says, if you say I, I'm a stream, I've, I've reached stream entry. So, well, if you if you take that statement at face value and you you believe in it, and then that's that's there's a, a clear statement of self-view right there. That you know I am. You just there's a demonstration that's been bought into as a, a personal achievement or a personal identity, and so that uh, he very much follows in in um footsteps in that respect of of uh, you know, giving people the means and 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 also um, mm-hmm. emphasising the, the the usefulness of of making the breakthrough but not encouraging people to, to sort of hang on to uh, the kind of levels or ideas or, or ranking of each other, and comparing each other in, in that way.
2: I'm reading the book at the moment I start reading it. it's called, it's, I recommend it to anybody, it's called The Yellow World, and it was about this boy who, at 14, um, developed some severe cancer, and, uh, He lost limbs and everything, you know, and he wrote this book, it wasn't about surviving cancer, but about what he learned from him. And he noticed that um, he started to live in what he called the yellow world. The other world, which wasn't the yellow world, is the world where um, we watch a film, read a book, or have a perception, and things like love, or um, sex, or pain, he noticed that In the yellow world, in the world of reality, they were totally different when he looked at them. His perception wasn't what was happening. And he started to use this for um, the whole of his treatment and the pain and the way he looked at his illness. (coughs) In the end, when he was having chemotherapy, because the veins seemed very deep, he could actually watch the needle going into his hand. And he didn't experience any pain, because he changed the word from pain to noticing experience. The experience and the thought pain are totally mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. So living in a world of actual reality mm-hmm. which is what you're trying to practice in Buddhism is totally different from the perception of reality.
0: He is a wise, a wise lad.
2: Yeah, it's a fantastic mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's what I just made up saying that that our, our perceptions of things you know your perception of what a Buddhist monk is
0: well, what pain is? Yeah. Because when when you you take something like the experience of pain or a colour, when you you really explore that experience, when you, you so you're feeling a sensation and then you you th- in a way you you freeze it and frame. It. Okay, now what is that? And why is that called bad? Say so with a pain in the body, and when you 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 kind of <laughs> capture it frame it and and really hold the attention right on it uh, and sometimes you can just get a, a flicker uh, just for the most the, the briefest of moments of a different perspective on it and you realize oh there's this pattern of consciousness and then there's this oh bad don't like but there's there's this way of recognizing well that's there's just this pattern of consciousness there. And then the calling it bad or saying, I don't want, or I hope, when's this gonna be over, you realize, well, that's clearly extra. But the pattern in itself, in a way, pain isn't painful. Or when you look at a, take a color, like the experience of looking at a particular color and you, you, you explore, what, what is that? What's that experience of, of seeing a patch of a, of a certain color? And then it's the same thing. You're like, oh well, red isn't really red. <laughs> if you see what I mean, it's, it sounds irrational, but when the the mind is very very still and you you bring attention to any experience, then you see that in a way, like it's like a conjuring trick. It it gathers its reality because of the blur. You know, you don't quite see what the conjurer's hands are doing, so the trick fools you. But in a way, it's like freezing the 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 hands or, or taking a film and watching the hands go in slow motion, and so you say, oh, that's how the trick is done, and that there there isn't really a rabbit there, or that or that, um, that was an illusion, and so that that feeling of painfulness in pain, or the uh, or the 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 colour that's there in a, a form, uh, then in those clear moments, it can be seen how the 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 thinking mind and the con, the conditioned mind uh, adds that on uh, and the, there's uh, yeah, Ajahn Chah's own descriptions of some meditation experiences he had when the mind got extremely quiet for very long periods of time and he says exactly that kind of thing he said I saw the kettle the water kettle but it wasn't a kettle yeah 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 I saw my bowl my alms bowl but it it wasn't it wasn't my bowl anymore there was the the mind could sort of separate out the the, the sort in a way the sense experience from the sanya or the perception, and that uh, it, that um, where we also it, this kind of thing is revealed when people's minds start breaking down with with dementia and um, with uh, with old age or, or or other kinds of illnesses where the the mind starts labelling things in incorrect ways, or that you don't, you know, that you're experiencing pain, but you don't really know to get away from it because the mind's just registering it as a pattern. But the connector that says, "Oh, pain, get away from this. Your your hand is sitting on the radiator, and that's very hot," and that the that the oh, pain, this is bad, get away from it, isn't there? And it's just this sort of that that you can even have this sort of. Um, there's this kind of dissociation, where that it's as if that the pain in the hand was like a you know a, the the color of the of the sky or the a, or a, pa- a patch of wallpaper. It just doesn't really register as anything. Doesn't register as a feeling. It's just a, a, another pattern. So um, it's useful that we have those immediate associations like pain, ow. You know, <laughs> that's what it's there to protect the body. But in this kind of um, the development of meditation it's help it is extremely helpful to see how the, uh, our perceptions are fabricated that they're they're formed and just like this young lad in the you're describing the book that that oh I don't have to hold it in that way I don't have to label it in that way look ha that changes everything and then if that's done from a, a place of wisdom then it's extremely liberating obviously if it, if it's just biological breakdown, then it's not necessarily liberating at all. It can be incredibly stressful, whether those, those perceptual faculties break up. Okay. Andamayang dhammagata sadhu karang dhadamase sadhu sadhu sadhu, sadhu anubodha